And we've been kind of working through Moses' call to ministry, really, to uh, deliver God's people out of Egypt to a, a land flowing with milk and honey, that they might worship the people, might worship his people, might worship the, the Lord together. All right, so it's chapter 4, and we are going to start today's reading in verse 18. And we're going to read to verse 31, but we're probably only going to cover about half of those verses today. We'll finish that up next time. All right, so that's um, Exodus 4. We're going to begin in verse 18. Hear God's word to you this very morning. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they had heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and our word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. I'm going to need a sip of water before this one. All right, my brothers and sisters in Christ. You think about it, I mean, we all know this, right? that the story of Moses and the Israelites and the exodus in, um, out of Egypt is really <laughs> an epic for the ages, right? I mean, what a wonderful, incredible, uh, awesome story it is. True story uh, to boot. But even Hollywood couldn't pass up the opportunity to tell this story, right? Because um, some of us remember Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments. I used to watch that when I was a kid a lot. Uh, my family would watch that. Um, and then, of course, there was the, the newer Prince of Egypt, the animated film that I've seen once in the past, and I just rewatched it now, 
And um, yes, there was much cringing to my wife's dismay. Uh, she, she doesn't like to be around me when I watch Hollywood uh, <laughs> kind of play with the facts of Scripture. It just drives me batty. But that's, anyway, that's that. Um, so, I mean, and it, it is nice, um, certainly, um, for, and my wife said, wouldn't you rather have them watch Prince of Egypt and some, like, you know, Skimpy and whatever these other crazy cartoons are? And I said, yeah, I mean, I understand where that's coming from. It's more wholesome uh, entertainment, as it were. But it does have some negative side effects. Let's not just, as long as we're aware of that, it's okay. I'm not saying don't watch these things. I, I just watch them myself. But um, one of the, the, the negative side effects I want to point out is that um, not only do they take artistic liberties, which they tell you at the beginning, um, and they add things to the true story, uh, such as, picturing Moses growing up with Pharaoh, like their buddies, and they recognize each other, and they remember their childhood, which never happened. Um, but also, when he confronts the people, when he confronts uh, Pharaoh as well, um, that's, it doesn't go the, the same way. Um, he's with um, his wife Zipporah, not with Aaron. And very interesting uh, inaccuracies there. But another negative side effect is that it not only adds things that never happened in the story, but here's the thing I want to talk about today. It actually leaves a ton out, a ton of things that are super important to the larger story of God calling Moses to go and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Um, and, that's, and it actually takes away from the main point of the story. So we're not getting the main point if you watch Hollywood's version. Um, and, but when you look at chapter 4, um, the text before us this morning, this is what I want to point out. Most, if not all of it, was left on the cutting room floor. Hollywood will not tell you about the second half of chapter 4. But this is written in God's holy word. It's for our edification. It's a, And we're going to see, even the weird part later that we saw, the weird interaction with Zipporah and Moses and Moses' son, even that actually has a powerful point to be made that has to be made in order for the story to make sense. And we'll, we'll get to that next week. So hold, hold on for that. Maybe I'll pique your interest. You'll want to come back to hear about that text, that interesting text. But what, what we saw last time as well, it's very important to see this. It's not just a story about God delivering his people out of Egypt which was important to, to understand, right, to free them from their bondage, but it was equally a story about what God brought them out to do, which is positively he saved his people, he delivered his people that they might worship him, that they might give him the glory, that they might um, turn away from false gods and false images um, and idols, and that they would worship the one true God, the God of their father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Remember, I am. Yahweh, so they could worship him in freedom and in truth. So the book of Exodus is actually the inspired account, listen, this is very important, about how God transforms, listen, how he transforms slaves into worshipers. That's what the book is all about of Exodus. It's all about the fact that how God transforms slaves into into true worshipers. So we'll see, that carries on into the New Testament as well, doesn't it? 
how God transforms those who are enslaved to sin into free worshipers of the thrice holy God through his son, Jesus Christ, who again uh, claimed to be I am. So it's very powerful. So now this is why, for instance, it, the, the whole story starts off with the leader that God chose. Of course, we're going to talk about Moses at the beginning of Exodus. Moses is going to figure large. He's going to loom large at the beginning. Because if the people needed to be prepared to be worshipers, how much more did the leader need to be prepared to be a leader of God's people? That's why we have all this uh, ink spilled here um, through Moses' own hand. And it's interesting to show the humility of Moses because he shows all his mistakes, all his warts, all his doubts, all his failures. Moses puts in the good, the bad, the ugly. We see him as he is. Um, so many years of walking with God will kind of do that to you. And we see this as he writes it. Uh, for, for sure, he had one of the, if not the most, especially in the Old Testament times, daunting and high and holy of tasks. Um, I often, whenever I've looked at Exodus and, and Moses' ministry, I always shake my head and say, I don't know, humanly speaking, how the man did it. And obviously we know how he did it, and that's what we're going to see this morning. It was only by the hand of God that um, even Moses could do what he did. And that's what we've been looking at in the first, when we looked at chapter 3, the first half of chapter 4. Very quick recap. So far, we've seen the Lord has revealed himself to Moses. He's revealed his plan to Moses. He's revealed his promises to be with him to Moses. He's answered all of Moses' objections. He's calmed all of his fears. He even gave Moses a glimpse of how it definitely is going to end. This is what's going to happen, Moses. This is the sign. You and the people of Israel will be worshiping me on this mountain. You'll be freed from the house of bondage, and you'll be here worshiping me. Um, and he, so he fast-forwarded the video, as it, was, as it were, and said, Moses, it's a done deal. Now, this was all after 40 years of on-the-job training that, that Moses had, uh, shepherding sheep in obscurity. In the, in, in the, he went to the school. You know, what university did you go to? Yes, he went and he was trained in uh, all the, the greatest schools of Egypt, but really the school that Moses got a, a doctorate in was the school of hard knocks. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's where he got his doctorate, I think his PhD, uh, being out in the desert school. He was learning there. What did he learn? He learned to be a faithful, patient shepherd of sheep, a godly father, a godly husband, and a godly employer, employee, excuse me. Um, so day in and day out, he had to care for all the different sheep, the stubborn ones, the ones that tended to wander, and, and he had to have incredible patience feeding them, leading them to water, caring for them, and God was preparing him to deal with his people. So in addition to all this, it's important to see this, God gave him a preview of all the miraculous signs and wonders that God was going to do through him. Um, and um, in order to consecrate Moses uh, for his, his service. Um, and we saw that, what did God give him? He gave him that, he took that shepherd's staff that Moses had, and he was going to consecrate and sanctify that for his service as well. He told Moses, 
to bring that with him. And he even said, hey, guess what? Aaron, your brother, is going to meet you. He's going to help you. I know you think you have a problem with speech. Well, don't worry. You will be like God to him. And whatever I said to you, he will say. He will speak for you to the people. So a lot of preparation is going on. But now we're going to continue in our text, and we're going to see this. This is what the, the truth of what we're going to see this morning is. As Moses begins to leave for Egypt in answer to God's call, he shows him a number of things, and I think this morning we'll, we're going to get to three. First of all, Moses shows consideration. So the first thing that we see as he's prepping to go to Egypt, Moses shows consideration. Look at verse 18 with me. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. And actually, I believe in the original Hebrew, he says, Shalom, which is peace be with you, wholeness. It's a way of saying, you have my blessing. Go with my blessing. So what's interesting is Moses goes from the burning bush where he has this incredible experience with God. Then he goes right from there. Instead of going directly to Egypt, he stops somewhere. Notice this. He goes to his father-in-law's house. That's his first stop. And the first thing we see is that he has consideration for the man, listen to this, who received him as a stranger, who took him in and provided a place, who provided um, employment, and even more than this, Jethro had such a big heart, he gave his daughter's hand in marriage to Moses. So Moses could have a family, have a new life, um, be away from the oppression in Egypt, and remember, um, he was a wanted man, you know, the top ten. He, he, if you would have went and if there were post offices back in Egypt, you would have seen his face on the wall back then. But Jethro made a place for him and his family, and uh, really wrapped his arms around him. And so one of the things I ask couples, I talk to couples about in premarital counseling, even marital counseling, is how's your relationship with your in-laws? Because uh, we know usually that really can affect a marriage relationship, um, how well you get along or don't get along with um, in-laws. And, and in many cases, it's a very sad situation. There are some very difficult situations. And yet how refreshing it is to see a son-in-law and a father-in-law so have such a healthy, uh, godly relationship, be so close to one another, live in peace and harmony and, 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 and with great warmth and great um, affection for one another. And so in other words, this was an area of strength for Moses in his relationships. He had a great relationship with his wife's dad. And we see this, we'll see later on. Jethro is going to come back into the story. Exodus 18, he's going to travel to go see how Moses is doing. And they're going to have a great reunion. And it's all positive. So what a blessing when you see that in life. And, um, and it's noticed here, uh, and the other thing that's interesting, before we get off this point, that I thought I wanted to point out, is um, when Moses asks to be relieved, he says, let me go back and see um, how my people are doing, if any of them are still alive. What does he say? He says, go in peace. And I'll tell you what's, what's pretty interesting about that. It, it takes a lot of strong moral character to give that response. By all means, my son, go, and I wish you all the best. That's what he's saying. Um, you know, instead of saying what we would hear a lot of the, the times in this kind of a situation, well, then who's going to take care of the flocks? 
You can't just get up and leave now. What's this two, where's the two weeks notice? Or, you know, you're going to be putting me in a bind here. You're going to be messing me up, Moses. Um, what am I supposed to do if I relieve you of your duty? Then who's going to take care of my flocks? He doesn't do that. He takes takes the hit on his, even even though um, it's going to be costly to him. And he says, "I want what's best for you um, and for your family. Go, and I wish you well." And now I want to say one other thing as I thought about this um, on Moses' side. You know, sometimes as Christians, the older I get, um, maybe I have a little less patience in this area where I should have more patience. But when Christians act pseudo spiritual or what I might want to say is overly spiritual, you know, with the halo over their head, um, a little bit self-righteous. Uh, I'm not saying I don't fall into that, because I know I do, and I groan myself when I see it in myself. But notice what Moses does. He doesn't say, well, I just saw God in the burning bush. I don't have to explain myself to Jethro. I already have God's word. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to ignore uh, uh, Jethro, and I'm just going to go straight to Egypt. He doesn't do that. Instead, he does what? As one of the commandments he will later bring down from the mountain, he honors his father and his mother. And in this case, he's honoring his father-in-law. But he was in his father-in-law's uh, household, as it were. And so he shows uh, legitimate respect, legitimate honor. And that's something that's a great lesson for all of us as a side lesson. But it was also a great prep for him is that serving God does not mean that we don't have to serve um, others, and particularly in the area of honoring those whose honor, who where honor is due. I think of when I was a young believer, I regret a lot of the times that I didn't show the proper honor to my parents, for instance. Um, and I had all these different reasons why I didn't have to, because God told me to do this, and this is God's way. And, the, and I should have still um, been in humility, trusted the Lord enough to also pay the proper respect um, to the authority figures in my life who've cared for me all the way up to that point. And that's what Moses does. He doesn't use uh, the vision of God and speaking with God as an excuse uh, not to carry out his domestic responsibilities. Instead, he honors those who God calls him to honor before he leaves. So that's all to say he had some unfinished business he had to take care of before he could go right from the burning bush to, Moses, to Pharaoh's presence. Uh, it's very important to see that. So the first bit business, uh, unfinished business, taken care of. He goes to his father-in-law. His father-in-law gives him the green light. But there's a second uh, piece of uh, unfinished business that need to be taken care of. And only God could take care of that. That wasn't something that Moses could take care of, but it's something that God, that God had to take care of. So he shows consideration, Moses does, for his father-in-law. But now God is going to give Moses confirmation. God's going to give Moses confirmation. Now, apparently, there was another unspoken reason why Moses was reluctant to answer God's call. And I didn't see it here until we read um, past the event at the burning bush. And it's this. Moses wondered, how am I going to face the demons of my past? How, you're telling me, Lord, to go back to Egypt, to the place where I totally messed up, where I killed a man, where, I'm, where I am wanted. And I'm sure that that haunted him those 40 years in the desert. 
You know, how am I going to face those charges? How am I going to face those people? You know, would my youthful indiscretion, my misdirected attempts at justice come back to haunt me after all? I mean, think about it. You know, Moses was really pleading with God to send somebody else, wasn't he? And we see here that that was one of the things that was stuck in his head. But God is so good to us. He's so merciful. He's, he is such, he really is the God of all compassion and grace. Because look at what we read in verse 19. This is important. Verse 19. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, so he's still in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. What's God doing there? God knew that Moses had to get this off of his mind and off of his heart before he could focus on the task at hand. He knew this was gnawing away at him, causing him no little amount of inner turmoil. So he relieves Moses of his fears and his worries. Right from the onset, he assures him that it's safe to go back now. All the men who wanted you dead, Moses, are dead themselves. You've outlived them. Why, did, why does God tell him this? He tells him this to assure him and to give him the confirmation he's going to need so that he won't fear reprisal for what he did 40 years ago as a rash younger man who was led more by zeal than wisdom. What a word of grace this is. How many of us look back in our past lives, especially when we were younger, and we think of youthful indiscretions you know remember not the psalmist says the sins of my youth and here you have God with his chosen leader in such tenderness and with such compassion saying Moses it's okay now it's all right to go back you're safe don't even give that a second thought another thought take it off your mind it's not something that has to um, weigh on you heavily as you go about this heavy task that I've called you to do. Chuck Swindoll, uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, uh, preachers when I was a young believer, he really helped me as a young believer. Um, he puts it this way, what a relief it must have been. And how wonderful that God personally cares about those things that worry us and prey upon our thoughts. He cares about them more than we care about them. Not a single nagging, aching, worrisome, Stomach-tensing, blood-pressure-raising thought escapes his notice. As the Apostle Peter wrote, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Unfinished business number two, taken care of. Check. Met with my, um, met with his in-law, check. Um, those who wanted his life um, are dead. Check. So verse 20, you can see uh, Moses is a little bit lighter in the back here. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. Now he's free from domestic obligations. He's free from the inner turmoil of past indiscretions. He loads his family into the minivan. Oh, I mean the uh, on the donkey. And he leaves, he, he leaves for Egypt as a free man. And there's one little uh, note that we have to, one thing we do have to note here 
and then we'll get to our very last uh, thing I want to point out from the text, is notice it says very clear in the text here, Moses writes this, he took the staff of God in his hand. Now, here's the really cool thing, is that this is the very staff that he used, a very ordinary stick um, that he used to shepherd the flock um, as a, when he was shepherding Jethro's flock. Just an ordinary shepherd's staff. But now, it's specifically called the staff of God. Why? Because God transformed it in his presence into a snake and then back into a staff again. This is the staff that the Lord told him to take with him in order to continue to perform miraculous wonders and signs when he got back to Egypt. Now, this is such a clear example. I couldn't help but stop, camp on this, and preach here. Because it's a clear example of how God, how, how simple, ordinary, everyday things, and people for that matter, a lowly shepherd in a sense, can be used by the all-powerful God of the universe to do the extraordinary. It's another example throughout the Bible that we see where God takes ordinary and he does something extraordinary through it. Now this is what we have to understand. There was nothing magical about this staff, okay? Um, it wasn't a magic wand. Uh, like in all the fantasy uh, movies that I do like to watch, I admit it, it's a guilty pleasure. They deal with getting your hands on this ancient sword that has magical properties, right? Or even um, the Holy Grail, that if you get the Holy Grail that Jesus touched, you'll have eternal life. Because objects have no power in and of themselves, even supposed holy objects, it's only because God chooses to use them for his glory and show his majesty, his power, who he is. What makes them special is the God who chooses to use them to bring about his will and to show his glory for his own purposes. And that's why this ordinary staff, Moses constantly had it as a reminder too, don't forget, of what God had already done through him when he did those miraculous signs, when it was just him and God on the mountain before the burning bush. So Moses would know, um, he would have the comfort of knowing God is with him, and God has done miraculous things with this, and by faith. So it was a faith thing as well. Moses knew this is how God has chosen to work, and I'm going to take this with me. And so that gave him great encouragement. So that's we're now on the last point of the sermon. Um, and that is the final um, preparation up to this point. So we see the preparation. As Moses begins to make his way to Egypt, the Lord arms him with something else now. Now the Lord's continuing to prepare him to go and do um, these mighty works of the Lord. And um, as he makes his way to Egypt, the Lord arms him with a succinct reminder of what he's called them to do. Now look, when you look at the text and you're reading it, you're like, these are just seem to be random details, but they're not. Because it only stands the reason, when you think this through, that when you're on your way to carry out a very specific plan of action that God himself has called you to do, that you want to rehearse over and over again the plan so that when you're actually in the middle of, of it, you're, you're going to have it rehearsed so much that you're going to know exactly what you're to do and exactly how it's supposed to turn out. Um, so the Lord tells him, he reminds him once again, 
Seek to it that you perform all the wonders that I give you the power to do when you are before Pharaoh. So again, another check for unfinished business is got that down. But here's the thing uh, that as we look at this very last point in the text that really jumped out at me this past week and was uh, deeply encouraging, uh, believe it or not. It's that if, if Moses was going to be prepared um, ahead of time for the fact that it was going to take a long process before Pharaoh finally heeded the word of the Lord of Moses, then, then uh, the word of the Lord through Moses, then, then God had to um, give him that assurance through his word. In other words, what God is telling Moses here is, don't worry. It's a fact that, that Pharaoh is not going to listen to you at first. Because here's the problem. If Moses goes and he does the things God says and Pharaoh says no, then Moses would question, hey, wait a minute, what's, what's wrong? Is there something wrong with the staff? Is there, you know, did I say something wrong? Does that sound familiar? We wonder when we share the gospel, how come they didn't listen? How come somebody didn't re repent Johnny on the spot? Well, in this case, at a very specific calling of Moses, God is saying he's not going to listen. So don't let that deter you. Don't let that shock you. Don't let that worry you. And so here's an important principle for all of us. To be for, forewarned is to be forearmed. In other words, um, it gives us strength and encouragement when we know ahead of time um, that in this case in particular, that there's going to be, it's not going to be easy. So in the New Testament times, when Jesus says to us, in this world, you will have trouble. He's forearming us. He's forewarning us. But take heart, I have overcome the world. But what he's saying is when you go to do my will, it's not going to be a walk in the park. Everything's not just going to fall into place easily. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be trial. There's going to be, but don't worry. I've overcome the world. In the end, you will be victorious. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, don't worry, uh, Moses, when that happens, remember what I told you. You will be worshiping me on this mountain with the Israelites, with my people. And so when it happens, Moses would say to himself, God, that's all right. The Lord told me this was going to happen. And he would know it's all going just as planned. And he would have that inner peace, the peace of the Lord that surpasses understanding. Now, there's one part of the text, and this is the last thing we're going to talk about this morning, excuse me, uh, that troubles some people, and I can understand why it does. It's not an area that I struggle in in terms of um, accepting, but I know a lot, some of my brothers and sisters do. But it's in verse 21 where we read this. God says to Moses, but I will harden his heart, that is Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. Now notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say Pharaoh will harden his own heart. Although we will be told a number of times in Exodus that Pharaoh does indeed harden his own heart. But notice here, and about nine more times in Exodus, so this isn't a one-off, God clearly says that he himself will harden Pharaoh's heart. 
And since it's going to be brought up a number of times throughout the book of Exodus, and we're toward the end of this message, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but I do want to just say a few words in closing. First thing I want to point out is notice how matter-of-factly it's mentioned here and not even elaborated on. Moses doesn't object to it. He doesn't raise any questions. God just simply says what he says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, why does that not phase Moses? I'll tell you why I believe. Because Moses knows the Lord is the Lord. He knows God is the sovereign God of the universe. And he does what he wants, as he will later say in Daniel, with the peoples of the earth. Now, referring back to this passage and others like it in Exodus, the Apostle Paul himself puts it this way in Romans 9, 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, here's the issue. If God wants to take an arrogant, sinful ruler and harden his heart to bring himself the glory that's due his name, then he is just as righteous and just in doing so as when he decides to have mercy on sinful people like Moses and the Israelites to bring himself glory. The former magnifies his justice in the judging of the wicked. When God gives the wicked what they deserve, when he brings condemnation and judgment, remember these are already fallen sinners, when they get what they deserve, that brings God, God glory as he displays his power and his holiness and his righteousness in taking stubborn sinners who refuse to repent and further hardening their hearts. He gets the glory. In the same way, when later he magnifies his grace in the delivering of unworthy sinners, the Israelites, who were also stubborn in their own way. And the Lord worked in them um, and for them by his grace. Now, Calvin didn't make this doctrine up. This isn't something that Martin Luther made up, or even St. Augustine, who lived 400 AD, the African bishop, although they all clearly held to it and taught it, um, as it's taught here in Scripture. But we see way back in Exodus that already we see um, that God magnifies himself as being the sovereign God of all and deciding whom he will harden and whom he will have mercy. That means he's the judge of all the earth. And as Abraham would say, said back in Genesis, if you remember, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Because the real question we have to ask, because this is what makes God's grace so amazing when we sing amazing grace. Why doesn't God give us all what we deserve? Why doesn't he choose to glorify himself by meeting out pure, righteous, and holy justice? You know, I, I cringe a little when folks ask too much for justice. <laughs> yes, we want a just society where everybody's treated fairly. I'm not talking about that. But when you're facing God and you, 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 are, you have such a lust to see people get what they deserve, you need to be careful. Because if he doesn't show mercy to you and you get what you justly deserve, it's not going to be good for you. And that's the wonder of grace, that he doesn't do it to that it doesn't harden all of our hearts in our sin. Romans 9.22, Paul puts it this way. What if God, 
choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? And now go back to our immediate text. Verse 22 of Exodus 4, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Now, this is obviously a brief, succinct summary of what Moses is to say, because he's going to say a lot more, and there's going to be ten whole plagues, and there's going to be a long period of time of him continuing to, to, tell, Mo, to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, plague after plague. So this last plague is the one that's mentioned here, the killing of the firstborn son, if you remember. In other words, this is what you're to tell Pharaoh. You can't go on flouting the word of the Lord. You can't go on cruelly oppressing and enslaving my firstborn son, God is saying, Israel, and think there will be no consequences. That's one of the huge uh, problems we have in the world today is that people don't realize there are consequences to your decisions. And that's why we don't even do our children favors when we don't train them up in the way in which they should go and show them that choices have consequences so that they will learn. John McKay puts it this way. It was fitting that the people should worship the Lord, but Pharaoh would not recognize the Lord's right to demand this. It clashed with the divine status accorded to Pharaoh himself and what he perceived as his relationship with Israel. But in that clash of rights and authority, it will inevitably, inevitably be that Pharaoh will lose out. The sentence will be made to fit the crime. In other words, that's what we're seeing here. Who has the rights over Israel? Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt or the Lord? I am Yahweh. So make things right with Jethro. Check. Knowledge that those who sought his life have died. Check. Words of reminder to prepare him for the big day of confronting the king of Egypt. Check. But there was still one last piece of unfinished business that needed Moses' attention before he could fulfill his mission in Egypt. As a matter of fact, this last item, if not tended to, would stop Moses' mission dead in its tracks even before it started. There was one issue that Moses needed to tend to that if it would not, if it would not have been addressed, Moses' story would have concluded right here in chapter 4, and the rest of the book of Exodus would have looked very different than it actually does. And for that, you're going to have to wait till next week. <laughs> so I figure that might uh, exactly give you that cliffhanger so that might entice you to come back next Sunday where we get to the really interesting uh, part of this text. But for now, um, I want to mention this, and we'll, we'll really we'll close with this. Um, you know, I talked about how the um, 
the Hollywood versions of Exodus um, are not very accurate and they are misleading. And certainly if that's the, the only uh, information you ever get from the Exodus, then you're going to be in trouble because it's a very warped idea. However, let me say this as we close. At least for me, it makes me, as I watch these movies, I go, wait a minute, that didn't happen like that. And then I do what? I go back to the real story. And I dig deeper into what God's word, how it, how it says these events actually happen. So I hope, if anything, this will cause you to dig deeper, go back to the Bible, uh, the true story, to find out exactly how these things really happened. Again, the good, the bad, and the ugly, things that are pleasant, things that are not so pleasant, things that are easy to understand, things that are a little harder to understand, things that are easy to accept, and other things that by faith we have to accept that the, the God, the judge of all the earth, will do what is right. He knows what's best, and he is holy, holy, holy. That everything he does is good and righteous. And it's to glorify himself, both in the judging of the wicked and the saving of his elect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that indeed you are a holy God and yet you are a good God, a loving God. You are a God who magnifies himself in showing your power and your might and your sovereign right over your creation and especially over your people. And yet you are a God who primarily shows his glory through saving and delivering his people, your people, by your grace through the man you have chosen. Not Moses, but the one greater than Moses, who Moses predicted, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him that we come to you. It's in him that we fall on our faces and give you worship and praise because you have chosen to show us mercy not because of anything in us, not because of anything we have done, but purely because of your grace that is shown to us uh, before time in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.